0: Now, we are in the series, and the series is entitled The Apostles' Creed. And we started this out two weeks ago, and just want to remind you of a couple of things that we said. The purpose of the series that we have is we want people to know the essential doctrines of the faith. And we're using those words intentionally. We want folks at the end of this series to know what are the essential doctrines of the faith. So you're not going to get everything that has to do with being, in our case, Presbyterian, but you are going to get everything that you need to know, that you have to know, that you must know in order to be a Christian. It's the essentials of the faith. Hopefully we said at the end of the series we're going to think biblically about these essential doctrines. We're going to discern the difference between those doctrines that are essential versus non-essential, and then we're going to, Lord willing, embrace the larger evangelical church. We said the two key ideas that are going to come back over and over and over and over again are there are essential beliefs and that God's people are called to seek unity and embrace diversity. We made this one statement. Hopefully, you hear it every week. We believe is more important than I believe because I can go off on a tangent. I can be misled pretty easily, but historic, we believe over thousands of years, things that the church continues to affirm over and over again, trust that. Whenever you hear a new doctrine, be weary. Whenever you hear the old, old truth, trust it. Todd, last week, this one statement is worth the entire sermon, and it was a good sermon. We can't just know about God in our heads. We must encounter Him in our hearts. Now, today... We look at what does it mean that he is the maker of heaven and earth. If you have your Bibles, open with me to Genesis chapter 1. I'm going to ask you to stand once again in honor of this one verse. Genesis chapter 1. I'm only going to read one verse rather than reading the entirety of the creation account from Genesis 1 and 2. You're welcome. (laughs) Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, it says this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. You may be seated. Now, I'm not trying to be silly or trite in this, but do you notice how God starts out the Bible? This is his introduction. What is the Bible? The Bible is God's revelation to us about who he is and how it is that he relates to us. It is not primarily an instruction manual on how you can live the most moral of lives. It's certainly there. It can do that. However, what it is primarily, it is God's revelation to us. It is His Word, and He's trying to get across to us who He is and how He relates to us. And the way He chooses to start out the greatest book that has ever been written is, In the Beginning God Created the Heavens and the Earth. Period. Now, the longer we go in history and the wiser we think we become, we say, Whoo, I got serious questions about that. Did that really happen? Now, I want to be as respectful as I can. I want to explain the terms in here. I promise you there's no malice in my heart or condescension. The Scripture says that when we start beginning to question whether or not there is a God, the fool has said in his heart there is no God. Do you know what it means to be A fool. It means to have information that you have access to, but to intentionally and willfully refuse to believe the truth. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, what all does this include? It includes everything. Now, what does it mean in the beginning? Now, I can't explain this to you. I can only tell you what the scriptures teach, and that is that there was never a beginning for this entity called God, that he has always been. He is pre-existent. I don't even understand that statement that I just made. He has lived in eternity, oh, this way is for you, eternity past, God was there, Eternity future, God will be there. When Moses gets an introduction to God, he says, "Let me tell you what my name is. My name is I am. You can call me B. God is. He has always been. He will always be. So in the beginning, I don't know I, I can't fathom how far back that is. Nobody. God could even give us words that we would understand. In the beginning, God decided at some point in fixed time, he was going to create what you and I know as the earth. The heavens, everything up in the universe, the stars, everything that is millions and billions and trillions of light years away, God decided to create it. Now, I'm not going to walk us through all of the creation narrative, but in essence, here's what it says. God said, let there be light. And all of a sudden, there was light. And then God said, Let this happen and it happened. And God said, Let the, It's God's word that breathed life into a universe. God's word created. In the beginning, God created. I, I mean this, there are intelligent people. Wonderfully intelligent people who are doing tremendous good, humanly speaking, here on the earth, that they serve wonderful causes, and they have a notion that it was over a gazillion years, and that God had no part whatsoever, and there is no God, and, and, and we had this incredibly fortuitous event that happened here and here, and then there's a series of fortuitous events that, that happened that nobody has an explanation for, and it came to be this little amoeba thing, and then it eventually got some legs, and we started crawling, and then we lost a tail, and we came into here, and, and we were a monkey, and now we're not a monkey, and uh, I, I'm not poking fun. I'm just saying, man, it's easier to me to believe that in the beginning, God created it makes more sense to me. In the beginning, God created. Now, I want to give you a spectrum of views because as far back as we can look into the New Testament time, a man named Origen, who is really close to the life and times of the apostles, we look back to him and, uh, and from, from there, he was teaching that he was not entirely convinced that it was a six day creation. And Augustine said the same thing. And, and I can point you to some other stud theologians, just, I mean, folks that love Jesus, love the scriptures, believe that it's all inspired by God. And here's what they said I'm just not sure that's what they're trying to get across here in Genesis. And so there has been a diversity of views on the origins of the earth as far back as we can see. Now, please hear this. This book is primarily written to tell us who God is and how he relates to us. You know what it is not? It is not a scientific textbook. Everything that it says is true, everything that it says is right, Everything that it says is accurate, but it is not trying to get across to us all the details about how God created. It tells us in the beginning, God created. Then it walks through six days, six specific days in which God did some things. I'm not going to walk you through all of the the, uh, theories that are out there as to how God went about creating it, but here, let me give you the spectrum. On this end of the spectrum, it says we should view this as a literal 24-hour period of time and that God took 24 hours to make this and then he stopped making on this day one. And then day two, he did something else. And day three, he did something else. And day four, he did something else. That is one view to take all the way over here on the other end of the spectrum. And that is God used the evolutionary process in order to create uh, 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 the, the earth and everything that's in existence. There is this spectrum of believers, those who embrace this as God's word given to us. There's this spectrum of believers who have uh, these views right here. I'm going to give you the information that I think is essential for us to agree upon. But can you see this? For a long period of time in church history, we've had a wide variety of views. So get bent out of shape. When you hear some person claiming to be a Christian, it says, I don't think God had anything to do with creating the earth. Get bent out of shape because the scriptures are very clear on that. Don't get bent out of shape when they don't share your same view about how God created it. Because throughout church history, folks have disagreed. Now, I'm going to give you what it is that we should agree upon. But whether you choose to believe that it is a literal six-day period of time. Exegetically, I will tell you, this seems to bring the least amount of questions. If you come all the way over here and say, God, used the evolutionary process, this creates the most amount of exegetical questions. And somewhere in between, you have, still have Everybody has questions. All the way over here on this spectrum, we're not entirely sure what to do with day four. Because uh, what we know as a 24-hour period of time doesn't come about until day four. So we're not entirely sure what to do with this over here. However, this side over here, they're not entirely sure what to do. Is it a literal Adam and Eve? Yeah, it's a literal Adam and Eve because Jesus believed it was a literal Adam and Eve. Got some problems. Everybody has problems. Now, listen to this. I really believe God was trying to let us know, hey, church, my children, I created it. And if I were to tell you all the details about how I created it, your mind would explode. In the same way, if I were to try to put myself in front of you, my glory would so overwhelm you that you would die on the, on the spot. If I were to share with you all of the details about how I went creating the intricacies of the entirety of the universe, you'd die. You'd overthink it. We couldn't comprehend it. So in the beginning, God created I want to read to you. Uh, this is from the report of the Creation Study Committee. You didn't even know this existed. But in 2000, our denomination put a, a, a committee together to bring about a recommendation to us as a denomination, say, hey, th- th- this is what we should uh, think, and, and, and etc. I want to just read you. Out of all of this literature, it is possible to distinguish two general schools of thought on the nature of the six days. One class of interpreters tends to interpret the days figuratively or allegorically. Uh, examples, Origen and Augustine, while another class interprets the days as a normal calendar days, and that's Basil, Ambrose, Bede, and Calvin. From the early church, however, uh, oh, from the early church, however, the views of Origen, Basil, Augustine, Bede seem to have had the greatest influence on their latter thinking. Last sentence. While they vary on their interpretation of all the days, all recognize the difficulty represented by the creation of the sun on the fourth day. Here is, I think, what we should choose to believe um, and and take this one out. If you want to investigate this and you want to go off and and find out, do it. I would encourage you. It's a fascinating study. I spent way more time over the years on on what the the six days should be. Um, And I'm happy to meet with anybody who wants to do it. Um, Here's what I think we should should do. Listen to this. I didn't have them put on the screens because I wanted you to hear from God's word. Nehemiah says this. You are the Lord, you alone. You have made the heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all of their hosts, the earth, and all that is on it, the seas, and all that is in them. And you preserve all of them, and the host of heaven worships you. That's what we should do. This should be our view. Now, what are the essentials what is it that we must believe in order to maintain the, 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 the view that this is inspired and errant, et cetera? What, what do we must believe? I want to give you six. Uh, oh no, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven thanks. I, I'm going to give very little explanation of this, and um, uh, if you came to the seminar, the summer series that we had, Dan, uh, Allen, Dan Allender, that's a, that's a wonderful counselor, by the way, in, uh, in uh, Seattle, is that where he is? They don't think he's there anymore. Uh, Dan Rober, our own Dan Rober, uh, taught this. So what is essential? Number one, God created the world ex nihilo. What does that mean? God created everything out of nothing. He didn't have atoms and molecules. He didn't have a canvas to work with. He literally created everything out of nothing previously to that. Number two, God is distinct from his creation. He is not a part of the creation. God is not in the dirt, in the tree, in the sense of he is one with this. He is distinct from it. He is the creator. We are the created. God created the world good. And the world has, has felt the effects of the fall, but hear me, the, the, the earth, it's still good. You remember when the astronauts were flying up? This is 1968. This is the first trip that we had taken around the moon. There was all sorts of thoughts about whether or not they would actually survive. They get up there, and what does the astronauts do? They take turns reading from Genesis one. And they got in trouble for that. But then they said this to all of those on the good earth: Merry Christmas. Number four, God created the world for his glory. Why is the world in existence? To point to the magnificence of its creator. God especially created Adam and Eve who, bear, uh, who both bear God's image. That's the fifth, sixth. I can't count. It's letters. I didn't write numbers on this. It's A, B, C, D. God specially created Adam and Eve who both bear his image. Folks, this is important. God created this dude called Adam. And he created a bride for him called Eve. And he made both of them in his image. And they were both insufficient to carry out the fullness of God's character. They need one another so that we can have the fuller picture as to who God is. We don't know the fullness of God without Eve. We don't know the fullness of God without Adam. God puts people on the earth, so we get a much better picture as to who he is. Next, Adam and Eve are humanity's first parents. They are the first, says the scripture, of all of those who bared life created in God's image. And then finally, Adam and Eve are historical figures who really did disobey God in time and space history in the Garden of Eden. They are not just uh, members of some imaginative story. They are real people who encountered a real devil, and they had a real fall that had real effects on the earth. These are the things that we got to agree upon. These are the essentials. This is what the Apostles' Creed is referring to when it says, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. These are the things that we have to agree on. Everything else, um, we can hold our position passionately. We can argue for it. With, with, uh, we can try to convince that that's fine. But, but please don't lose fellowship over whether or not it's a day or a Or something else. The Heidelberg Catechism, which I know you read regularly, question number 26, says this, What do you believe when you say, I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth? And here's the answer that the Heidelberg Catechism gives us. That the eternal Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who out of nothing created heaven and earth and everything in them, who still upholds and rules them by his eternal counsel and providence, is my God and Father because of Christ the Son. I trust God so much that I do not doubt he will provide whatever I need for body and soul and will turn to my good whatever adversity he sends upon me in this sad world. God is able to do this because he is almighty and desires to do this because he is a faithful father. In the beginning, God created. If you have your Bibles, two more passages that get across one more thought for us that this is where we park. What are the implications of God being the maker of heaven and earth? If you have your Bibles open to Isaiah, chapter 45. It'll be verses uh, seven through nine. It says this. I form the light and create darkness. I make well being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Shower, O heavens, from above, and let the clouds rain down righteousness. Let the earth open that salvation and righteousness may bear fruit. Let the earth cause them both to sprout. I, the Lord, have created it. Woe to him who who strives with him who formed him. A pot among earthen pots. Does the clay say to him who forms it, What are you making? or your work has no handles. What is this passage saying? It is saying that God is the one who makes everything that is in existence, and therefore God has the right to do whatever he wants with anything in his creation at any time. That's what it means. And we have been given the freedom to not understand why God does what he does. We can have even been given the freedom to be disappointed in some of the things that God does. We have even been given the freedom from the scriptures to come directly to God with our anger, frustration, bewilderment, confusion, etc. What we don't have the right to do is to tell him what to do. We don't have the right to accuse him of wrong. And he will be very patient with us for a long time when we don't understand life circumstances. I, I promise you, he will be so much more patient than you think you will. But he will reach the place where he will say, enough, now move on. You know, give us the grace to do it. When the, when the Apostles' Creed is, is getting the summary of the scriptures and it says that God is the maker of heaven and earth, here's what it means. That since he is the creator He is the decision-maker. And so he decides when it's going to rain, and he decides when it's going to be a drought. And he decides when you're going to experience an ease of life, and he decides when you're going to experience extreme difficulty in life. But remember his promise, because what came before in the Apostles' Creed, I believe in God the Father, Although things will happen, he has the heart of a father. And I know that brings up all kinds of questions for each of us. So You may be right now thinking about your father who is with the Lord, and you may be filled with joyous thoughts, and you may think, God, thank you so much for giving me the father that you gave me. It's what I've said for years and years and years. I'm so grateful for the, for the, for the earthly father that I have. It's not just about the dad, though. It's about the whole parents because it's about both representing who God is. You also may be thinking, man, my mom, I'm so thankful for my mom. And your mom may have parted 10 years ago, or she may still be with you on the earth. But You may be having these wonderful thoughts. And so the thought of God the Father, a parent to you, is a comforting thought. For others of you, you have very, very difficult backgrounds. And the image of a parent is not something that brings a great deal of comfort to you. It actually brings a great deal of angst. What I'm telling you is that the heart of this particular father is not one who looks at his children down the ground and says, I am going to be the kid with the magnifying glass burning ants. You're not rats, you're sheep. We are the sheep of his pasture and everything we see in the scriptures about a shepherd is a shepherd is willing to go to great extreme to love, protect Cherish the sheep, but he will not prevent them from all dangers. He will use all harm for good, but he won't prevent it all. Isaiah tells us that God is sovereign, that he is good. He is a father, and we won't understand why he does what he does, but as the maker of heaven and earth, he has the right to make all decisions that he wants. Final passage for us to look at comes from Colossians. It is Colossians chapter 1. Just two verses. Verses 16 and 17. For By him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him, all things hold together. Now we're going to explain this in more detail next week. I wanted to read it to us to get across this this thought. Scriptures tell us that God is, is the creator. Scripture tells us that everything was made by him and everything was made for him. Meaning everything that is in existence is actually made for God's pleasure. Please hear me. If you are upset with God because he has not done what you want him to do in your life to bless you, to make you more comfortable, to make your name great among all the nations, you need to grow up. Because it's not about you. It's about God. And God wants to use you. But here's the thing. Who is better capable of running the earth? Who's better capable of running your hospital, your family, your team, your neighborhood? Is it God or is it you? So if you want to draw people to you so that you might have great fame and fortune, et cetera, what are you going to do about the significant problems On the earth, God can solve them. You can acknowledge them. You are impotent. He is omnipotent. You have some level of wisdom, but you are are, are faulting that wisdom like me. God has all wisdom. You have a point of view. God has all view. So who do you want running the earth? You or God? So quit acting like it's your earth. Quit getting so disappointed when things don't go your way. It, it, it's okay to hurt. It's okay. All that is good. Please don't ever think that God sometimes wants you on his throne. He will share it with no man. Now we'll flesh that one presage out a little bit more as time goes on. Close with this, um, God's authority. I've taken this and ripped this straight from one of my seminary professors, a guy named Richard Pratt. It's called uh, Third Millennium Ministries. It's a fantastic ministry. It's equipping uh, seminary all over the globe. Um, it's, It's marvelous. So I'm ripping this language straight from them. There's literally nothing I've changed, right? So here's their language in there. God's authority can be seen in three ways, three things we must understand about God's authority or his sovereignty. Number one is authority is absolute. The Father has complete freedom to do whatever He wants with His creation. He does not have to check it with anyone. Okay, If I want to make a significant financial decision in my home, I can go ahead and make that decision. It would be extremely unwise. If I were to do that completely independent of Judith, No questions whatsoever. Hey, Judith, I just want you to know, I decided to buy a car. And it's only going to cost us $40,000. It'll only take me 71 years to pay it off. (laughs) Could I do that? Yes, I could. Would that be wise? Nope, go back to what we said earlier. That would be foolish. Not just for marital harmony, but because I would be taking out what in our marriage, in our case, God has given the majority of the wisdom in our our relationship over to Judith. So I'll be taking out all that. God has to check with no one. He doesn't need more opinions. He doesn't need insight. Well, God, you know, if if you don't do this with my child, I mean, if my child doesn't get into this college, then then do you know what's going to happen to him later on in life? Yes, yes, I do. And I'm on it. God, if you don't prevent my kid from wanting into into this sin right here, right now, do you know what's going to happen? Yes. Yes, I do. And I'm all over it. God's authority is absolute. He has complete freedom to do whatever he wants with his creation. Secondly, it is exclusive. This absolute authority that we just talked about belongs only to to the creator, and God is the only creator. God didn't have some aids in the process. He didn't have some of Santa's helpers to make him, help him make the earth. He just spoke it into being. He thought about it. He created all of the laws of the universe. He is the only one that was involved in that process. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and absolute authority belongs only to him. Nobody else has authority. What about kings? What about rulers? What about presidents? What about bosses? They all have lesser authority that God has set up here for us on the earth, and it is a good thing for us to have other forms of authority, but nobody has the authority that God has. And remember what Jesus said? All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. Finally, in terms of his authority, God's authority is exhaustive. His authority extends over everything that he has created in detail. Everyone is under God's authority and everything is under God's authority. There is nothing that is outside of his sovereignty and authority. And even though it looks as though times he may have turned his head and looked the other way, God's eye is always on what's going on on the earth which brings certain pain and confusion and hurt for us because we'd say, how can you be a good father and still allow this? I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. Last question. It's just a question I want to pose. It's rhetorical for right now. Please contemplate it. What are the implications of believing that God is the maker of heaven and earth. What does that mean for the decisions that you make about your life? Does he have authority over it? And are you living under that authority? We believe is way more important than I believe.